The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed him with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the gospel of the Lord. Over the past few months, the book entitled Dignity by Chris Arnade has garnered a great deal of attention. Celebrated in the Washington Post, The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, and other publications, Arnade's book is a journey through what he describes as the back row of America. Excerpts named as dispatches from the book can be read online at The Guardian. In drawing on the experience of the poor in places like Hunts Point, New York, Gary, Indiana, Selma, Alabama, the book offers a glimpse into the lives of various ordinary Americans. Lives that are often undervalued and unseen. Crucially, the book is not only comprised of written reports, but also features Arnade's photojournalism. One of the things you may have noticed in two of those slides was the prominence of McDonald's. And the book talks about how, for those on the margins, McDonald's is such a community center, a place of extended living room. The book, in many ways, is an invitation to see to see freshly, to see clearly. Our gospel text this morning includes a question about seeing. 
In verse 44, this question of Jesus can be read as a simple and straightforward directive. Consider, look here. But within the larger context, it's clear that something more is going on, that the question operates at a deeper, more challenging, perhaps more troubling, even implicating level as well. Jesus, as the most brilliant person and teacher who has ever lived, is using this question to draw his hearers, to draw us further in and forward, to challenge and call us. It would seem that Jesus, as the one who is the light of the world, invites and calls us to see, to see differently, to see clearly. Lord, in your mercy, give us eyes to see. This question of Jesus, do you see this woman, comes in the midst of this complex and confounding social situation. At this point in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been doing public work and ministry. He's been, on a modest scale, a public figure with a reputation and rumors surrounding him. Based on Jesus' actions, his miracles, his healings, what he's been saying, his teachings, the rumor has gone around that this man is a prophet. Jesus' own words from which the quote on your service sheet is drawn. In Luke 4, see him take up the language of Isaiah, this great prophet, and apply it to himself. A claim for which he's nearly killed. Something is going on around Jesus, and in our reading this morning, Simon, Simon the Pharisee, a religious teacher and leader, is seeking to get to the bottom of it. It's through this lens, fact-finding, investigation, that we can best understand the situation into which Jesus steps into in Simon's home. Have you ever been to a social gathering that on the surface, superficially, is pleasant and friendly, but underneath the surface, there's tension and something sinister going on even? Some of you might be like, that was Thanksgiving last year or something. <laughs> Jesus here, he's a guest, but he's also under the microscope. And the list of things that Jesus says that were not done for him, verses 45, 45, 44, 45, and 46, those things are foreign to us, but these would have been the expected, the traditional courtesies that should have been extended were this your standard, friendly extension of hospitality. To paraphrase Jesus' words in contemporary context, he might have said, you have not offered me a LaCroix. You've not offered to take my coat. You've not turned off the Netflix to greet me. The message of such a neglectful posture, sparkling water is important, people. The message would have been, you're not truly welcome here. The situation is more akin to a job interview or an interrogation than it is a friendly dinner party. The standoffish nature of this is suggested by the way Luke records both Simon in verse 39 and those around the table in verse 49 as speaking, questioning to themselves, not speaking directly to Jesus. He is the object under observation here, kept at arm's length, not the welcomed, honored guest. Behold, look, see. Into this tense situation, in verse 37, comes a woman. 
a woman of the city who was, Luke tells us, a sinner. Even before Jesus' question in verse 44, we the readers are invited, behold, to see, to look, to consider this woman, to see her clearly. And what we see is that where there's this standoffish, even disrespectful posture from the host, from the other guests, she's extravagant, even scandalous in her embrace, in her welcome of Jesus. Every failure of hospitality is abundantly superseded in her actions. That this unnamed woman attends to Jesus' feet, anointing them, is probably a product of the way he was reclining at the table. This was the only part of his body available to her. But it's also this picture of humility, of deference, of high regard. That this faithful disciple weeps likely over the cold reception, the rejection Jesus has received here. His testimony, the way she identifies with him, she shares in his suffering. That this giant of the faith would let down her hair and wipe his feet. This picture of intimacy and embrace. This is the kind of thing one did on their wedding night. is a marvel. Look, see, behold. What abundant faith. Consider this woman. Our English translation doesn't have it, but this same word, Behold, or look, is found at the beginning of verse 39, where Simon's judgment of the situation is recorded. Just as we are invited to consider this woman and her actions, we're invited here to focus upon, to consider him and his perspective. Behold, look, what does Simon see and not see? In her famous 1975 essay, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, film theorist, what an interesting job, Laura Mulvey identified and coined the phrase, the male gaze. Examining movies through history, Mulvey described how women and their bodies are most often depicted as the object of desire, the object of male desire. That is, as an object, less than human. Mulvey's discovery description is that a person might be observed, gazed upon, and not truly seen. A few months back, I was driving with my children, increasingly ambitious readers that they are, when the question came from the back seat. Difficult question. Dad, what's a gentleman's club? They'd seen a sign for one on the road on which we were driving. We haven't talked about it yet. The said, oh, that's probably a conversation for when you're a little bit older and when I'm not driving. <laughs> but when we do talk about it, and we will, I think I might say something along the lines that that is a place where women are looked at but not seen. This idea of observing, of looking at but not seeing captures something of Simon's posture toward this particular woman. On one level, he sees her, right? He's scandalized by what she's doing and what it might suggest about Jesus. But it's also true to say that he does not see her. She, to him, is a collection of past behaviors. She's a polluting agent, dangerous in some way, but not a person. He gazes, he observes, but he's blinded to her in some way. 
He sees the sin, he sees her reputation, but does not see her. This is so often how things work in our world, doesn't it? And some of this is, I suppose, necessary. We categorize. It makes our lives simpler. And we even recognize and celebrate differences, cultural, ethnic backgrounds and differences. We make judgments about people based on past behavior. There's a wisdom there. But the danger and what so often takes place in our world, isn't it, is that these things calcify. And human beings come to appear not in the, as they are in the language of Genesis, as those bearing the image of God, but as these constructed identities, as society has constructed. That's what we see. We see one another as defined by our vision of our pasts or the signifiers of our socioeconomic status defined by ethnic identity. Perhaps some of us even have Simon's vision for ourselves, seeing ourselves in terms of past behavior alone. A part of the work that Jesus begins to do among his followers is seek to change the way they see. In the light of Jesus, in the light of the one who is the light of the world, we come to see differently. On the way of the cross, our vision, our perspective, will be and are changed and renewed. We come to, the look, to look at the world with fresh eyes. As one writer puts it, in the kingdom of God that Jesus brings, human beings appear not as society has constructed them, but as God sees them. This is part of the work that Jesus comes to do among us, to bring sight to the blind. How does this change of vision take place? Immediately prior to Jesus' question, in an effort to get Simon to see this woman, Jesus tells a story. He tells this brief parable. And in this parable, related in verses 41 and 42, Jesus draws Simon into a different mode of seeing. A certain moneylender had two debtors, he begins. And the key thing about these debtors is all that they share in common. Both the one who owes 500 and the one who owes 50 are leveled in their need. Both are indebted. Both cannot pay. Both are in need of the same mercy. The word rendered canceled in verse 42 can also be translated as freely forgiven. It's used in the Apostle Paul's writings as offered grace. Both are in need of and recipients of the same grace. It turns out that Simon's blindness to this woman is rooted in, connected with, this blindness about himself. He doesn't see himself clearly, so he can't see her clearly. He doesn't see his own life in terms of the same need for grace. From his vantage point, and it's understandable, he sees her as the sinner, while he is not. And Jesus' brief parable complicates this perspective. It implicates Simon. Through the parable, Jesus draws Simon into sea. Reluctantly, he says, well, I suppose, he can tell he's being trapped, that whatever might distinguish himself from this woman, their status in the sight of God remains the same. 
All have sinned, we might say. All have fallen short in the same way in giving glory to God. And it's Simon's inability to appreciate this reality, to see himself and this woman as sharing together in it, that Jesus means to challenge. This is the power of such, so much good storytelling, of so much art, the power of the book Dignity that we come to see ourselves in the experience of others and our field of vision is changed, expanded. This is what Jesus is doing here. This is what Scripture so often does. I think of the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 12 tells a story to catch the conscience of King David. And it's only concluded when he invites David to see himself as the villain of the story. You are this man. Our reading this morning comes from the book of Amos, and the book of Amos in the Old Testament begins with this pronouncement of judgment on all the nations around Israel, around the people of God. And you can imagine the readers being like, yes, they're going to get it, our neighbors, before culminating with this statement that you too are under the same judgment. You too owe this same debt. A few weeks ago, in a sermon on another question, we spoke about the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius and how in that program of spiritual formation, growing in Christ-likeness, the program begins with this conscious awareness of God's loving gaze, his respectful, gracious, calling gaze. The exercises begin with the participant reflecting on the way that the creator of the universe, the Father of Jesus, the one to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, looks upon us, you and I, and sees us truly, and in love offers pardon and grace, freely forgives. Accessing that truth, living in that reality, means recognizing ourselves as those in need in need of such pardon and grace. It means recognizing ourselves in a way that is beyond Simon in our story today, seeing our debt. And when we receive such sight, when we see ourselves in need and held in the loving and gracious gaze of God, our perspective is changed. How could it be otherwise? When we are drawn into communion with the one who is the light of the world, we come to see things differently. Our vision is transformed as we see ourselves as those freely forgiven, generously offered grace. We come to see others differently. As we come to see ourselves in terms of the gracious gift of God's kingdom in Jesus, when we have a sense of the abundant love that includes us, invites us, draws us in, our vision of the world is made new by God's grace, by the work of the Holy Spirit. Human beings appear no longer as society has constructed them, but as God sees them. This change in perspective has profound implications. It's the grounding of mission, service, outreach, and evangelism. In this, our Catholic brothers and sisters are, are often far ahead in their thinking. Popes John Paul II, Benedict, and today Francis 
talk a lot about the culture of encounter that comes with the kingdom of God. That come a culture where we see one another, not as opposed to a throwaway culture they describe, where those who are invisible or those who, who serve our needs are discarded. Their writings consistently challenge the church, challenge us to see people as God sees them. Notice that Jesus' question and the attached parable, they're not an invitation to see the woman as a charity case. He doesn't say, look at this woman, consider the challenges she faces, the challenges that have led to her material and social circumstances. Give her something to eat. Rather, the parable, the question, are an invitation to see her as one made in the image of God, so yes, worthy of dignity, but as one in need of grace and capable of loving the Lord much. As verse 47 has it, one capable of faith that leads to salvation, as Jesus commends in verse 50. Jesus' vision of this woman, the perspective he invites us into, involves seeing past the social constructed identity to see her as one made in the image of God and in need of reconciliation with him. When we think about Jesus' call upon us as Church of the Cross to serve and love our neighbors, Jesus' invitation is not merely to see the need of material blessing, social transformation. Such elements are clearly an aspect of God's kingdom. But Jesus' invitation is to see further, to see more deeply, to see our neighbors as God sees them, those in need of free forgiveness and capable of great love for him of faith in him, to see them as recipients of his gracious invitation, to see them as those in need of hearing responding to the news of God's kingdom. To love our neighbors as Jesus calls requires nothing less. This has implications for how we might raise our children. Speaking to more than just parents here, we have so many children in our community we only truly see our children how God sees them, how Jesus sees them, when we see them as the ones to whom God has extended himself, the ones to whom God has freely extended the forgiveness of sins, and, and when we see them as those capable of loving and faithful service to him. A part of the calling of raising up a child is, of course, to materially provide, to see them as materially secure. But to see our children as God sees them is to go even further. To see them to the way of peace means more than raising them in such a way that they would attain to, fit into, American prosperity, the American dream. It means we see them as made in the image of God gloriously and in need of reconciliation to him. To see our children as needful recipients of his gracious pardon, his free forgiveness, and to raise them in such a way that they might lay hold of that offer, capable of great faith in and love for Jesus. In this way, we might say we raise up our children to follow the example of this nameless woman, this ruined sinner. The way verse 47 is translated in our reading might 
lead you to believe that Jesus' point is that this woman's love for Jesus has led to her forgiveness. That she's somehow earned this forgiveness by her great love. Many translations, however, put this verse a little differently than ours this morning and and describe the verb as this perfect passive verb. That is, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. And you can tell by her expression of abundant love. Some scholars suggest that this woman may have been one who heard Jesus' announcement of the forgiveness of sins earlier in Luke's gospel, had seen his miracles, and knew that in Jesus, God's gracious reign had arrived, and she was included. She'd seen clearly that in him was her hope. So her extravagant display of affection, her embrace, is evidence that she sees Jesus rightly. In her need, in her disadvantaged, look-down-upon position in her sin, she doesn't suffer the same illusions of Simon and the others who, who sit in judgment, who hide from themselves and others. Those in the back row sometimes, maybe even often, see more clearly. She has nowhere to hide, so she sees. She sees Jesus for who he is and responds to the grace she knows is there. May we, who, as we prayed earlier, are placed now among things that are passing away, among things that distract, that blind, that cover our vision. May we come to see as she does. As we come to this table in the posture of need, recognizing we're in need of free grace, free forgiveness. May we, by God's grace, by his mercy, by the power of his spirit, clearly see ourselves, see others, and see Jesus. By way of response to this text, to this passage, we're going to respond a little bit differently. We have another slide. This is an icon of this scene. And we're just going to take a minute just to sit and allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. So I just invite you to consider what the Lord might be saying to you. Consider the image, what you've heard said. And in a minute, I'll I'll gather back and close us in prayer. Lord Jesus, in this passage... The capacity to see you is connected to the capacity to see ourselves and to see one another. With that truth, with that reality in mind, we ask simply that you would give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see you first and foremost clearly one full of grace and truth, as one extending to us gracious invitation, free gift. And would we see ourselves and others made in your image, made in your likeness, made for relationship with you, and in great need. Give us eyes to see, we pray. Amen.